This is Bob Bender, host of the Business Side of Music podcast. Check out our show where we talk about all things related to the music industry. We laugh, we share memories, we discuss what's worked and what didn't work. Our industry is always evolving and can never be locked inside a box. From the rookie fresh off the bus to the well-seasoned professional wondering which new direction to take their career, our show covers all the bases. Join us as we chase this elusive animal we like to call the music industry. Check us out at businesssideofmusic.com. Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. When Steve Jordan first introduced the concept of the Polaris Prize to the Canadian music industry, the idea was generally welcomed, though the artistic community was still a little skeptical going into the first show in 2006. Uh, I remember talking to uh, you know the new pornographers uh, afterwards. Carl from the new pornographers I ran into him and. I was like, so, because he was there, but he didn't perform. And uh, I asked him, did you enjoy yourself? He's like, Steve, if I knew, if I had known it would have been such a great concert, I would have performed. So there was, there was kind of like a wait and see uh, if anyone cares, wait and see if uh, this is legit from the artists, um, from, I think, people who cared about music. There was a bit of like a, what is this thing? Steve Jordan is what they call a music man. He started his career working at a top 40 radio station in Kingston, Ontario, before moving to Toronto to multitask at the independent label Kinetic Records, where he did radio promotion, publicity, and A&R. And then he took his A&R shingle over to Warner Music Canada and eventually to True North Records. Steve is now the senior director of CBC Music. But in the early 2000s, Steve had an idea for a different way to shine a light on the Canadian music scene. The Polaris Prize is a award, cash award for the Canadian Album of the Year is decided by music filters, journalists, broadcasters, playlist makers, but no one who actually works with or for artists directly, publicists, managers, agents, anyone who directly makes money off of artists, they're not allowed to vote. So it's really a critic's prize for the Album of the Year. It's modeled after the Giller Prize for Fiction in Canada the Mercury Prize um, in the UK, which has been going on for a couple, a few decades now. And the idea of it is to kind of take the industry out of the determination of what is good or not. Um, not saying they're always right, but at least the, the opinion rendered as one of, of um, musical value and uh, not commercial value. Well, can you go back to when you first started plotting out the idea for this, what was, what was the impetus? Uh, there was a few things going on at the time. I think that the, the conditions in the Canadian marketplace were, were, there was a real sort of turning point in the air with artists like Broken Social Scene, you know, very early on in Feist's career, Stars, um, Metric, chaos like there was there was a bunch of capital a artists who were not really being pursued by the major label system in canada or if they were being pursued by the major label system in canada they were rejecting that system and going out on their own so that was kind of in the air at the time um, i'd also been following the mercury prize for some time i had been following the giller prize for some time and it, w- it really was just that you know divine kind of thing where 
the uh, proverbial light bulb goes over your head and it's like, why wouldn't this work in Canada? This could work in Canada. People are used to, at least at some level, what the Giller Prize does for book sales. And there's some awareness of the Mercury Prize in the UK, or at least there there was at that time. So it was like a, why not? And then I had had that split second thought where you're like, well, this seems like a really good idea. Someone else must already be working on it. And I kind of, you know, let it, you know, buried that thought. Um, But it kept coming up again. It kept um, it kept acid refluxing in my brain, so I had to uh, I had to pursue it. So, what did you do to kind of start the ball rolling? Like, I just I talked to people. I was like, "Hey, I have this idea." Musicians, uh, music journalists, label folks, you know, just people I knew in the industry at, at various levels, and the response was always really positive. And what I didn't really realize at the time is I was kind of building a community around the idea and it just, it kind of goes to show you a good idea belongs to everyone. It just doesn't belong to you. And so you sort of, we sort of got that ball rolling to the point where I got some seed money from some supporters to start it up, organized a, uh, just like an organizing committee, which would then become a board of directors once we, um, you know, got a not for profit status. And at that time I was not a, and well, I'm still not a big shot in the music industry. Um, so I got some of the more sympathetic big shots to back me so that when we we're making some of those calls to get financial support, there were some heavier names than mine behind me. And so we were really blessed that there was some hierarchy that uh, got involved in the first few years to get us off the ground. Well, how, how did you figure out what you needed to do? I'm really, I'm really curious about that because I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot of pieces you got to put in place, especially with regards to funding and with regards to becoming a nonprofit. Um, just you just surround yourself with smarter people than you who advise you on on what it takes. I mean, it really was us building something from the ground up. Um, so. A lot of trial and error, too, you know, um, and that's, I mean, you just do it. <laughs> you just do it. Like, how do you do it? You just do it. And then if uh, something doesn't work, you try something else. It's, it's not terribly, it's not like we had a plan, you know. We made plans, but those plans weren't based on anything else having happened before us. I didn't even really consult with, say, the Mercury Prize until a couple years into it to sort of compare best practices. We did have Alana Rabinovich, who uh, runs, has been running the Giller Prize in Canada. She was very involved with us early on uh, and did give us some really good advice. So that helped. You just, you just, again, you just surround yourself with people who are smarter than you with more experience who can, you know, offer their input. I think the other thing though is, is the idea of it, the, the purity of the idea of it that, you know, this would be a this would be something that w- that appeals to people who are very take music very seriously to a fault even um, and that it had to appeal to musicians and and critics and and people who give a lot of thought into their music intake we had to appeal to those people first and if if any decision we made was not doing that we had to think twice about about making that decision one for instance is we um, very early on, we were kind of told that, hey, if you want, if you need money, you're going to have to have a broadcast. 
And my reaction to that was, well, we don't really know what this is. We don't really know what we're broadcasting. This is not going to be an award show like, like the Grammys or the MTV Awards or the Junos because there, there, there may or may not be quote-unquote stars. We don't know who the nominees are yet. But we do know that we want there to be performances. Maybe there'll be speeches and presentations. Um, we're going to kind of make it up as we go. But we still don't know what it's going to look like. So how, why would we go pitch this to get TV money? And I think that seemed counterintuitive at the time, and it may have been. But I was adamant that the first show we just do, and we don't have cameras, we don't capture it, just so everyone feels like, a, it's special and it only lives in their heads and 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 nowhere else. And that uh, and that the artists themselves don't feel like they're there because we don't know how much experience they would have performing in front of cameras or or being recorded, and that can make artists nervous. So let's just do the first one as a thing and see how people react. So how long was it from the time that your the light bulb went off until you guys went up that first night? Two thousand and one was the light bulb year. Mm-hmm. 2006 was the first players here. Holy smoke. So w- was this your all-consuming passion for those five years? It was an all-consuming passion for two years, a semi-consuming passion for the next two years because I had to get a job. So I did some, uh, I did some A&R work for Bernie Finkelstein to True North. But to Bernie's credit, when I took the gig with him, I'm like, I still have this idea. I still want to work on it and see if, I can get it off the ground. And he, he was very, very okay with that. He's like, I think it's a great idea and I support it just as long as it doesn't affect your work, which I don't think mm-hmm. it did. And, uh, uh, and then it became an all-consuming passion and just had one day at True North just decided, look, if I don't try to full-time get this off the ground, it's not going to get off the ground. So then um, h- how did you get the panel together? I think just really, uh, you know, back at the time when you are getting weekly papers shipped to the office to, you know, see, uh, see the masthead, see who the music editors are. It was largely editorial, like music editorial, print editorial based uh, to start uh, with some college radio, some commercial radio, but mostly, it was mostly music writer based. So that just, we just sourced all of those people who back in 2006 you know, there was still people at daily newspapers uh, writing about music on a regular basis. There was still weekly papers also writing about music on a regular basis with three or four music writers on the, on the masthead. So that was, uh, that was who we had to start. It's, it's evolved since then. How did you determine what the prizing was going to be? It's funny. The first year, I think we got, we raised about $50,000 no, I think we raised about $30,000 and we had to pay for catering and we had to pay for prize money. So that's how we determined <laughs> that uh, okay. what it was. Everything else we got donated. And, um, and as we, as you know, like I think uh, Factor gave us $5,000 that first year. Uh, just as like, well, you know, here, here's a little starter. See what you can do with this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that is my dog in the background. This is, this is what happens when you record podcasts at home uh, during a pandemic. <laughs> so actually, uh, go, going back to the journalist for just a second here, did, they, did you start approaching 
the journalists before all the pieces were put in place just to see what the interest was going to be? Absolutely, yeah. There, there was a few key ones that we kind of wanted to get on board right away. Um, you know, kind of like the, uh, you know, if you can, if the coach can establish a bond with Michael Jordan, then the rest of the team sort of falls into line. So that mm-hmm. was kind of the that was kind of the approach back then, and and we definitely did have some enthusiastic uh, early supporters to help bring everybody along. And and it was important too. We had Lisa Ladusur. Um, was a very, very early uh, organizer and board member. Um, and so we knew that there was a lot of, uh, I mean, I knew that there was a lot of uh, mutual respect for Lisa. And that's that we hope that seeing Lisa support this, and she's a very critical critic, <laughs> um, would, would help uh, some others uh, follow. Okay, so how was it received the first year? It's funny because uh, pretty good. Well, really good, overwhelming. I mean, we 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 had a goal. It's like you know we're going to try this for a couple of years, and hopefully it builds up an audience by the third or fourth year, and and people start to give a shit. And um, that that really happened right away. Like the attention we got, the media attention we got was uh, was uh, it was almost like there was a pent up demand for something like this. You know, the artists themselves who were nominated that year, we got a few of them. Um, we didn't get all of them. Um, I think there was a, you know, a sort of sit back and see kind of scenario. Like, let's see what this thing's all about. Uh, I remember talking to, uh, you know, the new pornographers uh, afterwards, Carl from the new pornographers ran into him. And I was like, so, because he was there, but he didn't perform. And uh, I asked him, did you enjoy yourself? He's like. Steve, if I knew, if I had known it would have been such a great concert, I would have performed. So there was, there was kind of like a wait and see uh, if anyone cares, wait and see if uh, this is legit from the artists, from, I think, people who cared about music. There was a bit of like, a, what is this thing? Like, why, you know, why, uh, why are there no, you know, big hit artists? Although there were some, certainly, you know, Sarah Harma had a following and she was nominated Canon, um, new pornographers. There were not complete unknowns, but there were some complete unknowns on the list. And then I think what really sealed the deal for people was when, um, Owen Pallet and Owen Pallet and Final Fantasy won. So they knew the thing wasn't uh, quote unquote rigged for the popular artists. Um, that there was that the decision making actually was happening that night. That it was based on um, you know a determination of of what people thought the most important record was. So I think that really kind of sealed it in in the imaginations of uh, of those few people who were following at the time. And I think it just kind of grew from there. How many people came to the first the first show? Um, whatever the capacity of the Phoenix is with tables. Uh, so we, we, we filled the room. I want to say 900, but I, that, that may not be accurate. I, I, I honestly don't remember, but we, the room was filled with tables and the balcony and all that. So have there been any particular breakout successes that really started with the Polaris prize? There's been a few Jeremy Dutcher who won a few years ago, definitely, um, Tanya Tagak, who had been, who had, who was not an obscurity for sure. She was a, she was a renowned artist in many ways, but she sent me a note, such a grateful note after she won, saying, "Thank you for putting food on my table. I can now do music full time." Oh, that's awesome! And, and, and what she does is is not, um, you know, 
it ain't going to be played on Virgin Radio anytime soon. And that's fine. Um, there should be room for artists who are too weird uh, and too and too deep or too whatever for 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 commercial radio. And uh, so that's another one. But you know, even when Arcade Fire won for uh, the Suburbs, uh, you know, a good eight to twelve months after their album had been released, even that shot up uh, in terms of uh, streams and sales, uh, which was totally weird to me. You're thinking. This has already won the like it won the Grammy already for album of the year. Are there still people who haven't heard this record? And apparently, you know, we 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 juice that interest as well for people. So, in terms of um, you know making careers, there are some like tangible things that um, happen to artists who who win Polaris. Their asking price goes up. Like there's all these really tangible things, but. Really, it's just, a, it's, it's the real benefit, I think, is for, you know, non-mainstream media embraced artists to be treated as artists. And, and I think all the nominees benefit from that. How weird was the concept of having to present a big check to Arcade Fire? I don't think it's weird at all. Uh, I, I would say, you know... You know, there are authors who won the Giller Prize who are already successful. I don't know how well off they were. And, and how well off do we know anyone is, really? You see someone being uh, super successful. You assume that there's some financial stability there. But, you know, I, I, I didn't find it weird at all. The whole notion, like, like the giving out of the money, I think in ways, is, is not just about, you know, supporting struggling talent sometimes it will sometimes it won't it really is a hook to get you into paying attention who's gonna get the big check you know and they they uh, i think they um there were some charities you know like you just sort of pretty much hope that uh that the more well-off winners will will um consider charity or supporting other talent like uh like some have in the past you know same with feist i think she did the same thing when she won for um uh medals yeah, so I don't know, not that weird to me. Did you guys have to deal with any controversial ones? Oh no, there's never been any controversial winners of Polaris ever. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that would be sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, like, yeah, you know, certainly there, there's been controversies in, in, in small or big ways almost every year, like in some way, like was it controversial for a popular band to win, I guess. I think what we're proudest of, I think Claire would probably agree with this, is that the controversies are never around process. They're never around this thing is rigged, um, this is unfair. You know, one thing that, that uh, again, I think Claire would agree with this, is Polaris is responsive to criticisms. It doesn't mean we always agree with them, but there have been some more than reasonable ones that we have acted on, you know, one is the balance of the jury. It's too, it's too, it's too male. Uh, and, you know, at, at one point, we, our response to that was, well, you know, there's an open process for applying. Anyone can apply. But then when you look at the applications and you see that out of, you know, 30, there are four women, our reaction at the time was not to just accept that as fact. We actually went, well, that can't be true. There has to be more women covering and filtering music in this country. 
spend two hours on the internet just doing some digging and you find that there are people who don't apply. And so you just invite them to apply. And we did. And, and so I think as of last year or the year before, um, Polaris is now 50-50 on its, on its jury, which was a, a target that we set. And that was based on you know, feedback from people who uh, called us out on that. You know? But again, I don't, I, I don't think there have been any, any, well, there haven't been any controversies about the actual process. The controversies have been about artists speaking freely. And that's a thing we're actually, I think, pretty proud of, that we give artists that platform and don't censor them in any way and don't control their messaging. And, and I think that's why people respect Polaris. So again, for all the people that don't know all the backroom details of the Polaris Prize, can you explain how it's determined who the nominees are? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a larger jury. That jury decides the long list of 40, which comes out in June. The shortlist, they then vote again, the shortlist of 10, which comes out in July. And then we, we invite 11 people from that larger jury to form the grand jury, which decides the winner. That jury, that grand jury is always at least six women and five dudes. It is always at least six people from outside of Toronto slash Ontario. And every single shortlisted record, there are 10 shortlisted record, every single shortlisted record has one champion for that record. In other words, somebody who voted for that record number one on their ballot. And they are the ones that in the discussions go first uh, and say, this is why this record should win. We uh, send all 10 records. Well, I don't think, I don't know. You'd have to ask Claire who runs Polaris now. Maybe they don't send any records at all. Maybe it's all just links to, to streams or what have you. Um, but they're instructed to um, become intimate with all the records, uh, to listen to them as full albums and not, you know, 10 albums on a shuffled playlist until they are sick of all of them equally. And, you know, make notes and then they, we, we invite everybody um, to Toronto. I'm not sh- exactly sure what they're doing this year in the pandemic year. Um, uh, that's something um, one would have to ask Claire, who's running Polaris now, who was doing an excellent job, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. and, is, and it was my right hand, left hand for a great many years. So Polaris is in good hands right now. But um, they, they, they would, in a normal year, come to Toronto. We have a big dinner the night before, mm-hmm. and that's where the discussion happens. So the person who picked whatever, picks an album, goes first, says why it should win, they have like five minutes. Everybody else is allowed to weigh in on what they think of that record. And then the person who went first gets to go last again. Well, be that as it may, I still think it should win because of X, Y, and Z. And then we just move on through all of the records. There's wine. There's uh, smoke breaks, <laughs> and uh, uh, it is it is always uh, it is the thing I'm going to miss most about not being there is, is um, moderating that discussion. They're not you're not allowed to talk about you know uh, how an, like an artist live show that doesn't enter into it. All the discussion is about the album. You're not allowed to discuss whether they deserve to win or not because they're rich, not rich. Famous, not famous. 
Um, it really is all about rewarding the art. Now, some of those considerations can come into someone's actual voting, and there's there's nothing Polaris can do to really control that. But it's it's such a great like if our democracies operated the way that the Polaris jury operates, I think we'd be so much better off because there's so much listening. There's so much respect for other people's opinions. There's so much openness to hearing other people's opinions. I have seen someone who came into that, um, that jury uh, process going, geez, man, I just don't get it. And then someone says, well, here's why I think it's awesome. And then they'll go, huh, I'm going to go back and listen to it. So the next day, the Monday of the gala, all afternoon, that's when the jury gets to re-listen. You're like, I, I, I think in the past few years, we've actually, you know, gotten some headphones gifted from uh, sponsors and like, okay, take these headphones, take all your records onto your phone or whatever, go walk through Trinity Bellwoods Park and um, because the hotel's right near there and go, um, go take a second listen to anything you need to take a second listen to. And so they spend all day reconsidering. Then we gather them again the night of the gala. While the gala is going on, that's when the actual voting happens. So the first, immediately before they even talk, they have a vote. Five records are eliminated immediately. Uh, and so that's where the really interesting pivots happen. Because if you had your, your heart set on something, you may have a sense, based on discussions from the night before, where things may or may not go but you have to you have to pivot to if your record was in one of those five you got to pivot to another record and then there was discussion around the remaining five two more are voted off there's discussion on the last three and then there's a final vote one time in our history there has been a tie amongst two of those final three and we had to bring everybody back for a six to five vote because there are 11 grand jury members there's always one tiebreaker who is, who is a bit of a wild card. So that's the process. And uh, uh, it's, not, um, it's not flawless and it's not foolproof, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to see how people, the people on that jury embrace the conversation and, and really open themselves up to each other. I mean, it sounds really intense too, which is which is great because I, I think that one of the things that's really awesome about the way you've set it up is it becomes a conversation between people that are passionate about music. And I mean, it takes us back to when we were, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old and we would argue records with our friends. And that's exactly what I wanted to do with it. Like that's, that's like, really, that's, you just nailed it, man. Like that's all it is. That is all it is. It's a bunch of music nerds arguing about records and everybody wins, really, in a way. Sure, one person wins a bunch of money or one, one artist wins a bunch of money. But yeah, really, it's about, it's about what, what, I, what interests me about it is just the conversation itself. Not really the outcome of the conversation, but the conversation itself is what does, you know, what are someone's aesthetic values? And examining that and, um, and, you know, why do you like this thing that I don't think I like? And then, you know, once you hear why someone likes something, you go, huh, never thought of it that way. I'm going to go back and listen. So you, it's, it, it's actually a bit of an empathy building exercise. Like when you actually hear someone else 
say why they like something and something that you didn't consider. And then you go back and listen literally through their ears, not literally through their ears, but figuratively through their ears. That would be weird if it was literally through their ears. That would be kind of violent and we might have to call the whole thing off. But if like when you do that, it's, it's, it's such a great process. It really is. You know, like we've been, we've been asked to reveal that process. Like, would you ever have cameras in the room? Would you ever, you know, it would be so great to be a fly in the wall. And first of all, I'm not sure how interesting that would be to people, but we see really huge TV shows where people are rendering their judgments about talent all the time. Um, so I guess there is sort of a cultural interest in that. And this would just be kind of like a more, I don't know, not intellectual, but I guess like a, um, uh, you know, a, a more detailed version of that and totally based on music and not based on, you know, the quality of someone's voice necessarily. It's more about what, you know, how the music affects people and how the, and, and, and what the music does. So I don't know. Uh, but you, at the same time, I don't want artists to hear, and I'm not saying this happens all the time, but I don't want artists to hear jury members, you know, kind of dissing their music, right? Like this is supposed to be a positive thing, not a negative thing. And there was also that, that uh, possibility that perhaps someone's, because there are people like the dynamic in the room is there are some people who usually men uh, who feel very confident in their opinions because they're used to, you know, talking over people all the time and, and not to stereotype, but sometimes there are just some shyer people and you just want to create, that's why we, we make the balance of it, women over guys, because the, the, the dynamic just changes the power dynamic changes and uh, people feel a lot more open to express themselves, but there's still some people when you're moderating, you kind of have to draw out a little bit. Um, they're a little shyer expressing their opinion and you just don't want to burden that process more with cameras watching your every move. People might not feel so free to express their opinion. Well, great. Now um, last couple of questions here with regards to Polaris. One is, did it become what you envisioned and Two, which would be the second question, so we could wrap them all, to, all together. Has it changed from your initial vision, either, well, in a good way or in a bad way? I think it's gone beyond our expectations of, of what we envisioned. You know, it's, it's internationally recognized. I didn't expect that, really. You know, at a certain point, we actually had, uh, you know, I, I had to sit down with um, people running the Mercury Prize, and uh, they were asking me questions about he, how we ran our stuff, you know, and uh, almost as if we were equals. And that was really huge for me. I still don't know that we are. You know, there's a different musical culture in the UK and, and the Mercury Prize, like you still see massive, massive boosts in actual like music consumption with a, with a win there. Our, our, our systems are sort of set up differently. And although there, there's certainly like huge benefits to artists winning, it's just, there isn't that same thing, but for them to, to for them to finally take us seriously was, 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 was pretty huge. And um, I know Claire has been doing some work with, you know, some, some consulates, uh, Canadian consulates around the world to, um, be a bit of a music filter for some of their programming, which is which is huge for us. So, so the international thing is is beyond expectation. And and no, I can't say uh, it, that's kind of the beauty of it. It's it's 
it's kind of surpassed expectation and kind of turned out how we wanted it to turn out. And I think the, the most amazing thing is the community that's been built around it. You know, there aren't a lot of people on the jury now that, that were there when we started in 2006. You know, right now, Melissa Vincent, who's the, who's the, the jury foreperson, you know, when we invited, the first year we invited her to the jury, she, she told me that she uh, grew up with Polaris, which was such a weird concept. And you never stop to think about it. But when you get into your 15th year, you're like, well, I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, and, you know, she used to gather in, in um, uh, you know, on campus with some friends and they would watch the live stream and they would, I don't know, some people would bet on the outcome. Like, so there's a whole culture around it that's built up around it that we weren't even aware of. And that's the next kind of generation, I think, of, of the people who are going to decide what direction it goes. And that's the other thing that I think we're really proud of, uh, or I'm really proud of just sort of looking back is, is, you know, leaving Polaris was, was, you know, not an easy decision to make. But at a certain point, you're like, I think it's in good hands. And it, with Claire, it's definitely in good hands in terms of the, the organizational and the directional aspect of it. But with the jury, with the, with the jury that is kind of running things now, they're the ones that kind of determine the musical future of it. And um, I feel like it's in, in great hands. At the beginning of 2020, it was announced that Steve Jordan was stepping away from his position with the Polaris Prize to become senior director of CBC Music. The role of executive director of Polaris is now held by Claire Desjardins. You can find out more information about the Polaris Music Prize at polarismusicprize.ca. On the site, you'll find information about past winners, as well as short and long list nominees. In addition to shining a light on new recordings, Polaris has also instituted the Heritage Prize, sponsored by the Slate family to honor albums released prior to 2006. A sort of Hall of Fame, if you will. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or maybe are interested in advertising on the Creationist Podcast, please email thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a chance, please follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. Mm-hmm.